Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. My name is Ted Bendel, and today I was privileged to continue the series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, looking at Acts chapter 15 and verse 30 through Acts 16 and verse 40. Let's get started. Who else? Who else could do what Jesus did? So thank you, team, for for bringing us right into the very presence of the living God. I invite you to turn to Acts 15 in your Bibles, and also to flip to the back of your Bible and have a, the map of, of uh, Paul's missionary journeys handy. Um, we've got it on the screen now, but you know, it's in your Bible as well, or most of your Bibles anyway. Before we get moving, let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We praise you for your grace and goodness to us. For the ways that you have led us and provided for us and brought us to this place, to this time, together, that we might worship you that we might get to know you better. Father, help us as we look into your word and grant that 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 only your word might be spoken here and only your word heard that we might be transformed into better reflections of the Lord Jesus and be better equipped and prepared to serve you to your glory and praise in his name. And for all this, we give you our thanks. Amen. In mid-September last year, we paused our uh, Studies in Acts, concluding with the first recorded meeting of a church council. Now, there have been quite a number of church councils after that. But in Acts 15, we have the, the, first, the record of the, the first of those councils. And our brother, Jim Melnick, who is presently manning the soundboard, uh, masterfully placed that meeting in its context and showed how that council averted what could easily have become an extremely divisive issue in the infant church. And he concluded that discussion uh, with the letter that outlined the requirements for the Gentile converts. Requirements that would avoid or at least minimize 
conflict between Gentile and Jewish Christians. And that letter was carried to Antioch, not only by Paul and Barnabas, but also by Judas Barsabbas and Silas, who were um, respected men from the Jerusalem assembly. And we pick up the narrative in Acts 15 and verse 30. So let's read. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Whoa. Looks like we just avoided one division in the church between Jewish and Gentile Christians only to be faced with another. This one between prominent leaders and good friends in the Antioch church. Paul and Barnabas. But note that they agreed on what should be done. A visit to the churches that they had planted a couple of years before. The issue that now divided them was the how, or perhaps more directly, the who should do it. Now, going, if you flip back to Acts 13, you see that that's exactly what happened, is that Paul and Barnabas took John Mark with them, and they uh, went to Cyprus and then into the area that's now modern Turkey. And when they, not long after they had landfall, uh, Mark left them and went back to Jerusalem. We don't know why. There's no record of, of why Mark left them. Um, today, probably got a, a text message saying his mother was ill or something, but that didn't happen. So, But whatever the, the reason was, it seems that in Paul's opinion, the reason given was simply not justified. 
But Barnabas, remember his name means son of encouragement. He apparently saw something uh, in Mark and determined to coach him in the work of discipleship and evangelism. And it turned out that some years later, Paul had to admit that Mark was, quote, very useful to him in ministry. That's from 2 Timothy 4. Barnabas' confidence in Mark paid off. But now we've got a division between these two leaders. But look how God was able to use even that division. Even that disagreement. Instead of one team going to the various infant churches and no doubt um, planting others, now there are two teams. God, in His sovereignty, used human limitations for His glory. I, I love this. One writer observed, Thank God for that! Because disagreements are going to happen. Ministry is messy. Sheep stink. Leaders fail. Judgment calls abound. Perspectives differ. Convictions vary. But God is sovereign. Now, regarding Paul's choice of Silas, it's likely that Paul had occasion to appreciate the ministry talents of this brother in the time that they had spent together both in Jerusalem and in Antioch. And uh, given the implications later in Acts 16, we know that Silas was also a Roman citizen and that that would become an asset in times of persecution. So let's continue the narrative, Acts 16 and verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them the four observance, the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers. Let's see if I can make this thing work. Okay, where is it? I guess it's not going to behave for me. Okay. I'm not going to fight with it. So, Paul went over to this area, Derby and Lystrum and Iconium, and met Timothy there. Now, that whole area, by the way, just so you get context, this whole area is modern Turkey, just so you know. Um, 
Now, this was an area where Paul and and Barnabas had ministered before. And it seems that uh, Timothy's mother and grandmother had come to Christ at that time, and perhaps Timothy as well. And Paul, seeing Timothy's spiritual development and his giftedness for ministry, wanted to add him to the group. Now, the, the Jerusalem Council had settled the issue about requiring circumcision for Gentile males coming into the church. So what was going on here? Why did Paul want to circumcise Timothy? Again, we need to look at the context. In this case, the context of Paul's usual methods for evangelism. We read about it in in his first missionary journey. When When Paul entered a new town... Where did he go first to share the gospel? Where did he go first? Okay, into the synagogue. Where he knew that there were folk who at least had the background information. He wouldn't have to explain the Old Testament to them. And who in a synagogue has the privilege of speaking? Well, only circumcised males. So if Timothy was going to accompany Paul into the synagogue, he could go, but he couldn't speak. If Tim was going to be trained to speak and to share the gospel there, he needed to be circumcised. So for Paul and for Timothy, this was merely a strategic move that had nothing to do with Tim's salvation. It was simply to give Timothy the right to speak in a synagogue. Again, uh, Acts 16 and verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. When they come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a Vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, they've been ministering in this area. And they tried to go into uh, Asia, this oranger, orangish-colored area, and somehow the Lord didn't allow them. They tried to go into Bithynia, that pink area up there, and somehow the Lord wouldn't allow them. So they ended up going all the way over to Troas. Now that's something like a two to three week journey through mountainous area. It's a pretty 
tall mountains in those parts. Someone said that life is like a journal in which we intend to write one story, but actually write another. Let me give you an example. The story I intended to write about my own life uh, was after I graduated from engineering to um, continue my career as a federal civil servant, um, doing electrical engineering, specifically designing electronic and robotic devices for oceanographic research. But God had a different idea. And through a 50-year adventure, um, not all of it pleasant, some of it downright painful, here I am, um, husband, father, grandfather, a deacon, part of the preaching team in this assembly, helping people through grief share, serving on the board of youth Unlo- the local Youth Unlimited chapter, and involved in a few other ministries as well. And by the way, although my days as a civil servant are in my distant past, I'm still doing a bit of electrical engineering because the last couple of attempts at retiring failed. What can I say? God has some strange ideas. And here, the initial plan for Paul and Silas was likely to retrace Paul's previous steps. So, they intended to go down from Lystra to Antioch and then uh, down into this area. Probably, and then re- you know, back to Antioch. But um, God had another idea. When they got to the city in Antioch, that the northern one, there's two Antiochs. Um, when they got to Antioch, something happened. They thought to go into Bithynia, the pink area. But somehow that was a no-go. They tried simply to go western, west into the province of Asia there. And again, that was a no-go. So, you know, two or three weeks later, they found themselves over here in Troas on the coast, in the port city. And, you know, in that two or three weeks, there's no record of them sharing the gospel anywhere. So, how did they know that they were not to go into Bithynia or into Asia? And that raises the whole question about divine guidance and leadership. So, let me ask you another question. How did it happen that you are here in this building today? How did that happen? How did you get here? 
I mean, if you look back over your past, I don't know, 10, 20 years, how many decisions did you make that ultimately led you here? How did you know that each of those choices was God's purpose for you at that time? Well, you know, it's hard to put a finger on that, isn't it? Sometimes when we're looking for direction, God sends one of his servants to us with a word of challenge or encouragement or maybe direct guidance. Remember, Silas is described earlier as a prophet. So, Paul's traveling companion is a prophet. Maybe. Maybe, you know, as one who speaks, uh, through whom God speaks his word. Maybe that's how they determined it. Um, sometimes we see the answers to our questions in the events and circumstances of the day and simply take the next available step. Not even a conscious choice of decision. Not, you know, just happens. So, I don't know. I don't know how Paul and Silas knew where they were not supposed to go. I don't know how they ended up in Troas. That's a long way on foot. Uh... However it happened, Paul and Silas and Timothy uh, traveled on and got there. And there, Paul had a vision or a dream in which he was directed to Macedonia. Now, just in passing, there are a couple of clues to the care that Luke took in preparing this account of the journeys of Paul. For example, if you look at verse 7, Luke records that they went up to Mysia. And if you consult, like I've said, if you consult a topographic map, discover this whole area is mountainous. Um, so, up refers to elevation. Similarly, Luke records in verse 8 that they went down to Troas. Well, they've come from a mountainous region through a mountain pass, no doubt, and then down to the port city. So again, up and down refer to elevation. Um, you may have caught that earlier uh, when they left Jerusalem. They went down to Antioch. Well, gee... That looks not to me, but it's actually referring to elevation. Um, and you may have noted a change in the pronoun here, by the way. They, that is Paul and Silas and Timothy, traveled as far as Troas. But after that, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God called us to preach the gospel to them. Luke has now joined the company. 
And much of what follows in the next couple of chapters is from his personal diary, his, his own remembrance. And what follows is fascinating. So let's take a look. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and following uh, the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So, following Paul's usual practice, they looked around the town for a Jewish synagogue in Philippi, but they found none. Now, it only takes ten men to form a synagogue, but the Jewish population of Philippi at that point was very small. So, the group did the next best thing. They looked for a place of prayer. I mean, if you can't have a formal synagogue, then perhaps there's a gathering. Um, And they found a group of women who met for prayer. And one result of uh, Paul's sermon that day is that Lydia, a Gentile, described as a worshiper of God, and that's a term typically used of Gentiles who joined themselves to a synagogue. Um, And she was apparently a prosperous entrepreneur. That is, she was a a seller of purple, which was a high-end material. Um, She was converted along with members of her household. And Paul and company stayed with her as long as they were in town. Now, they stayed in the city for many days. How, how many is many? Don't know. Maybe a few weeks. And they regularly went to the place of prayer there where, no doubt, they continued to share the gospel and to teach and to train those who had gathered. Luke doesn't say anything about the size of the resulting church in Philippi at this point. But the work of the gospel seems to have aroused the attention of our adversary, the devil. We'll pick up the narrative in verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. 
And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. When they were brought, when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, initially, what was the problem? Wasn't this girl telling the truth? What could be the harm in that? Well, there's a couple of things. One, you remember when Jesus um, confronted people who were demon-possessed. He would not allow the demon to say anything about who Jesus is. Okay, that's one. So here's this this girl... um, Apparently, telling whoever who Paul and Silas and company were. But there's another issue at stake. And that's the same issue that we face when we have a missionary from another religion come to our door. And that's the issue of definitions. For example... You'll recognize these. One modern religion uh, defines Jesus as being an angel, the brother of Lucifer. Other modern religion says that Jesus was a human and became a god. And that if we work hard enough and follow his example closely enough, we too can become gods. See, they're using the same term, the same name that we use, but they mean very different things. Because the Jesus we worship always was and is eternally God. He chose to become human in order to redeem us. Paul put it here. Christ Jesus, although He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And as a human being, He chose to suffer the indignity of crucifixion out of His love for you, And for me. And then he rose from the dead, and that declared that his sacrifice for us is both effective and sufficient. Back to Philippi. This girl was under the influence of a demon, literally a python spirit. 
Now, the python was the symbol of the Delphic oracle and represented the god Apollo, who in Greek mythology was believed to render predictions of future events. Now, in this society, this is a very big deal. No military commander would go into battle without first seeking the counsel of such an oracle. And this demon that possessed this girl was deliberately using the term Most High God. Now, we take that to be a reference to the triune God that we worship, the creator of all that is. But in their system of belief, the term referred to the Greek Apollo, the Roman Zeus. And she went on to say, so there's one problem with their her use of the words. She went on to say that they proclaim to you the way of salvation. But in the Greek and Roman mindset, it was a fairly common thing to say that someone was a savior. The emperor could Say of himself, I am the Savior of the world. But by that they meant that they could free you from the perils of the fates. It had not, absolutely nothing to do with eternal life or reconciliation with the living God. So what this slave girl was saying was just plain confusing. As she used words that we use, but with very different meaning. What was amazing is that it took Paul many days to realize that something had to be done about her. And then he acted with the authority of Jesus to free this girl from the demon. But what was a blessing to this girl resulted in yet another, but much less subtle attack on the, the, the uh, activities of this evangelistic team and resulted in a beating and imprisonment. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the Prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison uh, doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Someone said, 
that the gospel entered Europe through a sacred concert that was so successful it brought the house down. You know, I can't help but admire these guys. Their backs were severely bruised and bloodied. They were apparently in shackles, probably with their aching backs against the rough stone wall. And their feet were in the stalks, likely spread so far apart as to be extremely uncomfortable. And then they break out in songs of praise to the God who had brought them to this place. No wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. I mean, this is, anyone else would have been saying some other words that were less than polite. Now, the word that's used, the prisoners listening to them, suggests that they were paying attention to Paul and Silas over an extended period, possibly several hours. It's hard to believe that in that time, in that time of praise, the gospel was not shared to the point that at least some of their fellow prisoners received the Lord Jesus. But Paul doesn't say anything about that. Luke doesn't say anything, rather. And then there was an earthquake of such a magnitude that the shackles were released and the prison doors unlocked. Now, think about this from the perspective of the jailer. He's probably a retired uh, Roman soldier. And he is well aware that he is responsible for these prisoners. If he had allowed even one of the prisoners to escape, his punishment would be death. So far better to commit suicide than to allow someone else to torture and kill him. And that's what he was about to do when Paul interrupted him. Now, the the jailer's question, Sir, what must I do to be saved? Might have a a multitude of meanings. Unfortunately, Luke doesn't say anything about how much this man had heard from or about Paul and his company before that night. And we don't know whether he'd been part of the mob that had taken these men to task for freeing the slave girl from her demonic oppression. Still, I have my doubts that for him there was any hint of a question of eternal salvation here. Um, I think he was more concerned about being saved from the penalty that was going to fall on him. But still, whether that was the intent of his question or not, Paul and Silas answered with the gospel. Believe, trust the Lord Jesus, and you'll be saved. They shared the content of the gospel, not only with the jailer, but also with his whole household, family and servants and all. And the result that all came to trust the Lord Jesus, and consequently, they were all baptized. And shared a meal together. 
Imagine all that happening at, you know, in the small hours of the morning. That would, must have been quite a scene. We run out of time. Verse 35. When it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens. and They have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates. And they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. There had been a miscarriage of justice the day before and that would likely affect the status of the church that had been planted in Philippi. The charge against that had been had that uh, Paul and Silas advocated customs that were not lawful Roman for Romans to accept or practice. But these accused were uncondemned Roman citizens. So the logic kind of flipped on its head here. Um, it must be indeed legal for Romans to accept and practice Christianity. And the magistrates needed to apologize so that the other Christians would have the freedom to continue to proclaim the Lord Jesus after this evangelistic team left the city. There's one other small item, and I'll just take a minute. Sorry about this. I have to wait for your lunch. Um, that, that Luke slipped in. You notice that in the last verse. They went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. Okay, that's pretty reasonable. Yeah, she was their host after all. And if they're going to leave town, they better pick up their belongings. But then the last sentence. When they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Who are these brothers? Up to now, we haven't heard anything about them. I mean, yeah, we know the jailer. And maybe some of the prisoner, other prisoners, but the other prisoners wouldn't have been released, I don't think, at this point. So what's going on? Well, Luke didn't, just didn't tell us about them. But the, remember, the team had been in town for many days, maybe a few weeks. And Lydia and the jailer were not likely the only new Christians. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians a few years later, mentions Clement and Epaphroditus by name in terms that suggest a very long friendship. So it's possible that they came to faith in the Lord Jesus during that period. But now, take a look. Just look back. How far these guys had come in the few weeks from Antioch to Philippi. Think how different that journey from the, was from the initial plan to visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord to see how they are. I mean, they're a long way away. 
way over there than they expected to be here. Now look at your life. How different is it from what you expected when you left high school? If you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, if you are His disciple, I have no doubt but that you have had some exciting adventures with the Lord Jesus. Because He, by His omnipotent grace, will use your availability to His glory in ways that we cannot even begin to imagine. Just look back over your life. And if you have not yet committed yourself to the Lord Jesus, this is your invitation. Ask that desperate question. What must I do to be saved? And then listen carefully to the answer. What must I do? Well, it's already been done. Because Jesus died and rose again, the work of your salvation has been completed. All that remains is for you to receive it and then to unpack the benefits, the opportunities, and the challenges of the gospel. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we do thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for loving us, for leading us, for teaching and guiding and training us, for using our mistakes, for using our rebellions, for cleaning us up and allowing us to be part of what you are sovereignly doing in this world. Lord, continue to work in us. Continue the work of your Holy Spirit within each of us. That above all things, Father, the name of the Lord Jesus might be exalted. And to him be all the glory and praise. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you're in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.